Hey, everybody, it's Kate. Listen, if you're local for the next week and a half, you can come by Canyon Media Studios and you can buy with cash or a check one of those wonderful little uh, Kate Daly Show Silver Round Coins Uh, that we have right now in stock. And so I want to make this offer available to those that didn't want to maybe order it online but wanted to just buy it in person. You can do that. You can come by Canyon Media, and I'll help you out with that. Um, And they're $99 plus tax. And so, of course, uh, come by and uh, get some for Christmas. What a great Christmas gift. Also putting silver back in people's pockets. How wonderful is that, right? And also a great reminder to be faithful and fearless Also, uh, talking about Lady Liberty, she's on the cover of it, just like the first coin minted in the United States. Don't you love history? Share that history with those that you love and put some silver back in their pocket that I think will only grow. What a great gift. So if you're local to this area that I'm in, in St. George or the southern half of Utah, come on down to Canyon Media. And for the next week and a half, you can get one right here in person. Thanks, you guys. Your political correctness at the door. It's time for the Kate Daly Show. You know, the real miracle of Christmas is that any religious significance remains. Despite the gaudy tinsel wrapping, the meaning of the Christ Mass remains somehow intact. Though our eager eyes now search the skies for man-made stars, we yet remember best the one which once upon a time stood still over a stable. This is the miracle of Christmas. Not that so many profane the day with self-indulgence, but that so many still trudge through the snow to an early service or a midnight mass. If after generations of effort we still tend to disparage the day, what do you suppose would happen if we instead renewed it? There are no more lengths to which we can go to dilute its significance. Perhaps we should revert to reverence. For if this magic day, despite the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, has somehow survived and thrived. My goodness, with proper care and tending, the love it represents might heal all of our hurts. The faith we could not starve to death, properly fed just once each year, might overwhelm the world. Anyway, we've tried everything else. The revitalization of Christmas will be as tedious as its erosion was gradual, but there's no better time than right now, because it's later than it's ever been. Where do we begin? With prayerful thankfulness, I think. Merry Christmas, we traditionally say to one another. Merry Christmas. Yet that's not the larger meaning of the day. It's his birthday, not ours. Oh, I love that. Amen to that. Amen. <laughs> Welcome. Kate Daly Show here. Happy to have you listening. Uh, let's Christmas it up a bit, shall we? Um, uh, let me play some really great recordings for you. And uh, maybe you can share these with your family Christmas Eve, Christmas Day. Um, and, and bring, I don't know, shed some more light. Shed some more light. Do you have any, uh, do you have any Christmas traditions, Uncle Milty, that you did with your families? Family. I should say, not that you have multiple ones. I, I don't, not, not anything no. really that... Uh, Stands out. Other than going, th- we used to go to midnight mass. Yeah. That was the big thing, going yeah. to mid Because an hour before mass, everybody's singing Christmas mm-hmm. carols, and mm-hmm. it's a long 
Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's a it long, long duration to go to Midnight Mass, yeah, but so. that was the main one yeah. over see, the years. I belong to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but I actually went to Mass last year just to check it out and see. I hadn't been for 30 years. I went one night 30 years 30 years ago when I was up in Seattle, and uh, and I actually I thought it was really nice. Half the people at nice church ceremony. at the Midnight Mass are LDS. <laughs> really? No, I'm well, not exaggerating. Hey, you never know. I mean, I thought it was. I just thought it was really neat. Well, it's um, a beautiful Mass. It so. really is. It's, it's it is. It's really, it's really worth going to, and uh, um, and I, our, as far as our tradition, my tradition growing up was that we read through Luke, we read the story and uh, of Christ's birth, and we had statues that that we had out as the nativity scene, and so that, and so then we would want to be the statues and reenact the statues through the story on the floor, and my dad would cut out a star and he'd put it on a flashlight and shine it up on the ceiling. Oh. And that was the star, and it was really fun, really, really fun. We'd turn out some of the other lights and while that star was up, and it was just a really fun um, way to celebrate Christmas Eve. And uh, we've done all kinds of things, um, you know, with our family. Uh, growing up, we've always read the Nativity story and and uh, the story about his birth. And I love this story by Paul Harvey. Let me play this for you. Uh, this is just a keeper. You'll love this. It's called uh, The Man and the Birds. And there's just... Just, some stories just get you. This is one of them that just gets to me every year. I love it. 1965, Paul Harvey. Here you go. The man I'm talking about was not a Scrooge now. He was a kind, a decent, a mostly good man, generous to his family and upright in his dealings with other men. But he just did not believe in all of that incarnation stuff which the churches proclaim at Christmas time. It just did not make sense. And he was too honest to pretend otherwise. He could not swallow the Jesus story about God coming to earth as a man. He told his wife, I'm truly sorry to distress you, but I'm just not going with you to church this Christmas Eve. He said he'd feel like a hypocrite, that he'd much rather just stay home, but that he would wait up for them. So he stayed and they went to the midnight service. Now, shortly after the family drove away in the car, snow began to fall. He went to the window to watch the flurries getting heavier and heavier. Then he went back to his fireside chair, began to read his newspaper. Minutes later, he was startled by a thudding sound, and then another, then yet another. At first, he thought somebody must be throwing snowballs against the living room window. But when he went to the front door to investigate, he found a flock of birds huddled out there miserably in the snow, they had been caught in the storm in a desperate search for shelter. They had tried to fly through his large landscape window. That was what had been making the sound. Well, he couldn't let those poor creatures just lie there and freeze. So he remembered the barn where his children stabled their pony. That would provide a warm shelter. All he would have to do is direct the birds into that shelter. Quickly, he put on a coat and galoshes, and he tramped through the deepening snow to the barn, and he opened the doors wide. And inside the barn, he turned on a light so the birds would know the way in. But the birds did not come in. So he figured that food would entice them. He went back into the house and fetched some breadcrumbs and sprinkled those on the snow making a trail of breadcrumbs to the yellow-lighted, wide-open doorway of the stable. But to his dismay, the birds ignored the breadcrumbs. The birds just continued to flop around, 
helplessly in the snow. He tried catching them. He could not. He tried shooing them into the barn by walking around them, waving his arms, but instead they scattered in every direction, every direction except into the warm-lighted barn. And that's when he realized that they were afraid of him. They were afraid of him. To him, he reasoned, I'm a strange, terrifying creature. If only I could think of some way to let them know that they can trust me, that I'm not trying to hurt them but to help them. But how? Any move he made tended to frighten them and confuse them. They just would not follow. They would not be led or shooed because they feared him. And he thought to himself, if only I could be a bird now, if I could be a bird and mingle with them and speak their language and tell them not to be afraid, then I could show them the way to the safe, warm barn. But I would have to be one of them, wouldn't I? So they could see and hear and understand. At that moment, the church bells began to ring. The sound reached his ears. Above the sounds of the wind. And he stood there listening to the bells. Adeste Fidelis. Listening to the bells pealing the glad tidings of Christmas. And he sank to his knees in the snow. Paul Harvey, I hope for you and those you love, this will be a wonderfully Merry Christmas. Wow. I mm-hmm. uh, love that every year. I absolutely love that. I also love this too. This is the story of 1914 and Silent Night. Here you go. It was Christmas Eve, 1914, and all was quiet on the Western Sorry, Front. How did I do that? For five months, Europe had been torn apart in what was touted as the war to end wars. The Allies, France, Great Britain, Italy, and Russia, had already engaged the central powers of Austria, Hungary, Germany, and the Ottoman Empire in bitter battles. New levels of mass carnage took place on the battlefield, courtesy of such modern marvels as machine guns, mustard gas, and landmines. Now winter had arrived, bringing with it frostbite and hypothermia, the curse of every ill-clad German or British soldier unlucky enough to be shivering in the icy trenches along Germany's border with France and Belgium. A collective sadness swelled across the isolated forest that Christmas Eve. But that night from the German trenches, a familiar tune floated over the battlefield. The British soldiers, hunkered down in their foxholes a quarter mile away, answered. German army, not to be outdone, began decorating evergreen trees on the hillside by lighting candles in their branches. Before long, an informal ceasefire, inspired by soldiers at war, 
blossom into a formal truce. Arms were dropped as both German and British soldiers embraced in a neutral zone called No Man's Land. Soon thousands of these soldiers were swapping insignias, kicking soccer balls, and exchanging holiday cards. One British soldier wrote home to explain his disbelief over what had just transpired. Just you think that while you were eating your turkey, I was out talking and shaking hands with the very men I'd been trying to kill a few hours before. It was astounding. Never before or since has a complete truce been honored in wartime to celebrate Christmas. Although the killing resumed on December 26, the newspapers in London and Berlin headlined stories about the power of peace in wartime. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, best known for Sherlock Holmes' whodunits, deemed the Christmas truce an amazing spectacle, believing history would honor it as one human episode amid all the atrocities which have stained the memory of war. It would be foolish, however, to attach some overweening lesson to be learned from the Christmas truce. But over the years, every time I hear a church choir or country crooner sing Silent Night, I think back to World War I, when for a moment, a battlefield became a place of peace. only Christmas can do that. Yes. Yeah, I'm pretty sure only Christmas can do that, um, uh, especially during this time. Can you even imagine being on the on the field at that time when that was going on? No. And not be touched by that. Just amazing. Anyway, story always warms my heart. Uh, we're going to come right back. Uh, a couple of more I need to share with you. And, uh, and maybe Uncle Milty will share a memory or two. Who knows? <laughs> we'll be right back. On the Kate Daly Show, a couple days before Christmas. Be right back. Talk lines are open now. Call 888-673-1450. This is the Kate Daly Show. Beautiful. Uh, welcome back to the Kate Daly Show. I uh, want to play for you now, uh, of course, The Care Package by Leonard Lee Smith. This was an interesting story about a grandparent's love and how they can bring this at Christmas time. Here you go. It was Christmas time, 1974. I was 10 years old, but I wasn't looking forward to Christmas that year. The previous spring, my mother and the man who was to become my stepfather when all the divorces had been finalized and he and my mother could marry, had moved us from rural central Alabama to sunny southern California. My brother and I were leaving behind our father and all our extended family. This would be my first Christmas away from Alabama. My beautiful and elegant mother took to California like a swan to a royal lake. My soon-to-be stepfather was a California native. My very athletic little brother reveled in a temperate climate that allowed him to be outside 11 months of the year. 
I, however, was a fat, awkward child with a high-pitched voice and a heavy southern accent. I was having extreme difficulty with the transition to a West Coast lifestyle. My first day at my new school, I walked to the front of my fourth grade class to introduce myself. All I said was my name and where I was from, and the class erupted in laughter with jeers of, he talks funny and he has a weird accent. It took the teacher nearly two full minutes to restore order, and she was angry at me for having caused a disruption. I was so disillusioned after that first day that instead of walking home after school, I went to a nearby gas station and used a phone booth there to try and place a collect call to Granny Smith, my paternal grandmother. She was my biggest ally. I was going to ask her if I could return to Alabama and live with her and if she would send me the money for a bus ticket home. But despite several attempts, the line was busy and I never got through. My mother was constantly encouraging, nagging, and badgering me to lose weight and always trying to help with that endeavor with whatever the latest diet craze was. She had been a fat child herself, but with puberty she had gained height and lost weight and undergone the proverbial ugly duckling transformation to become a great beauty in high school. She saw weight loss as the panacea of all problems and believed it to be the key to my happiness. She was very relieved to have me away from the annual holiday sugar binges and weight gain that my Granny Smith's cooking provided. Granny Smith was for me everything good about Christmas. Her language of love was food. She was an excellent baker and candy maker. She would cook for weeks in preparation for Christmas Eve when all of her children and grandchildren would gather at her house. Every favorite dish, dessert, and confection had been made to specification. Her table and sideboard groaned under the weight of all of the food. My brother, my cousins, and I would burst through her kitchen door brimming with anticipation, our arrival announced by the sound of five silver bells suspended from red velvet ribbon hung on a plastic poinsettia bouquet on the door. Her house was tiny and saturated with tacky Christmas decorations and cigarette smoke. But to my childhood aesthetic, it was glorious. She sewed new pajamas for all of her grandchildren. She scoured newspaper ads, catalogs, and stores all over town to get us exactly the toys we had requested. She was interested in me and my happiness. She was my resilience. She was magical, and I missed her desperately. It was Sunday evening, and I was moping around the house, dreading Monday and the return to school. Fortunately, there was only one week left until the Christmas break. I was longing for my familiar Southern Christmas. That Thanksgiving, we had spent with my stepfather's extended family. He and my mother had finally gotten married in Vegas over the summer. His family were polite, kind people, but I did not know them and fit poorly into their established routine, and I feared that Christmas would be more of the same. The phone rang. It was Granny Smith. She often took advantage of the discounted long-distance rates after 7 p.m. on Sundays. (laughs) She spoke with my brother Todd and I for nearly half an hour, asked us about our life and school and how things were going, 
assured us she had gotten the toys that we wanted and they would be there by Christmas. But before we hung up, she asked to speak to our mother. This request made my brother and me very anxious. When our parents separated, they didn't so much dissolve a marriage as declare war on each other. My brother and I knew that the campaigns and battles of this war could be long and brutal. My mother considered Granny Smith to be in the enemy camp. They maintained a civil but strained relationship. My brother and I were always worried that hostilities might erupt whenever they spoke to each other. Granny Smith informed my mother that she had sent a Christmas package and that it should arrive in the coming week. My mother said, thank you, but you didn't have to do that. It's very expensive to ship things across the country. I hope you did not have to spend a lot of money. Despite their differences, my mother understood and respected that Granny Smith was a woman of very modest means. Granny had been a widow for nearly 30 years and worked mostly menial jobs. For her, money was always scarce. Granny said it wasn't very expensive at all, and I was happy to do it. They exchanged polite but tense pleasantries, wished each other Merry Christmas, and said goodbye, and my brother and I breathed a sigh of relief. Sure enough, on Thursday after school, the phone rang. But it wasn't the U.S. Postal Service. It was the Greyhound bus lines calling to say we had a package waiting at the bus terminal in Claremont, California. My mother said to the clerk on the phone, I didn't even know that Greyhound shipped packages. The clerk said, oh, yes, ma'am, and we're much cheaper than the Postal Service because we don't deliver door to door. We have some of the cheapest rates around. My mother was a little annoyed by this since the bus station was nearly 10 miles away. But the clerk had assured her that the bus station was open 24 hours a day and that there was someone on duty at the shipping desk around the clock. We could pick the package up at any time. So after supper, we drove to the bus station. We went in to see the clerk. He confirmed that we had a package. And then he said to my mother, you can pull your car around into the loading bay. My mother said, what for? He said, oh, the package is too large to hand over the counter. My mother said, are you sure you've got the right package? This irritated the clerk, and he leaned over the counter and addressed my brother and me and said, are you guys Lee and Todd Smith? We nodded and said, yes, sir. He said, then this package is for you. I'll meet you around back. We drove around to the loading bay, and the shipping clerk came to our car with a hand truck carrying a heavily reinforced cardboard box large enough to hold a dishwasher or small refrigerator. <laughs> he said this barely makes it inside the maximum freight dimensions and weight restrictions as he hoisted the box into our trunk and went to get some twine to tie the trunk lid closed. My brother and I were giddy with anticipation on the drive home wondering what the box contained. Our mother was not in such a good humor. <laughs> she knew her ex-mother-in-law well and was suspicious of the box. When we got home, we had to go inside and get our stepfather. The box was too heavy for us to get out of the trunk. He grunted and complained as he sat the box down in the living room and said, What the hell did she send? A jeweler safe? My brother and I tore into the box, and the smell of our granny's house wafted into the air a combination of fried meat, grease, furniture polish, and cigarette smoke. <laughs> <clears throat> 
There beneath wadded newspaper and excelsior was our southern Christmas. There were presents wrapped in colorful paper and bows to go under the tree. Neatly folded in brown paper was a new set of pajamas for both of us. There were also two five-count packs of Fruit of the Loom underwear in the appropriate sizes for us both. (laughs) There was a countless number of decorative tins and repurposed Cool Whip containers. We opened them to find mounds of homemade Christmas treats, divinity, fudge, boiled chocolate cookies, parched peanuts, a massive container of nuts and bolts, which is what Southerners call homemade Chex Party Mix, but to which no prepackaged Chex Party Mix will ever compare. A whole fruit cake, a chocolate pound cake. She even included our traditional stocking stuffers of candy bars, chewing gum, citrus fruits, and pecans and walnuts in the shell. The box was as bottomless as Mary Poppins' satchel. As every sugary confection came out of the box, my brother and I shrieked with delight, and our mother moaned in defeat. Mother tried a last-ditch effort to hide all the confections and dole them out a few at a time, but each evening when our stepfather arrived home, he would begin to search for them and our mother's scheme would be thwarted. (laughs) Eventually, she just gave up and left it all out on the kitchen counter. Each Christmas that we spent in California, Greyhound would call and say that our package had arrived. Over the years, many treasures arrived in the box. Hand crocheted afghans, an heirloom family quilt, homemade Christmas decorations, a check to help with the purchase of my first car. For me, it was always the best part of Christmas. Even after I moved out of the house, the box continued to arrive. My friends and roommates at college were always astounded and delighted by the contents of the box. My grandmother was able to package and ship magic and love. Granny is long gone and missed more each year. Since her death, I have discovered in conversations with my cousins that Granny came to the rescue of all of her grandchildren at one time or another, softening what would have been hard and harmful emotional landings. She did it in such a way that we each thought we were her favorite. (laughs) Granny had endured a sad and difficult childhood with a mother who suffered from mental illness. She understood the importance of a child having an ally when a parent fails them. Each year, a few days after Thanksgiving, I hang Granny's plastic poinsettia bouquet with the bells on my front door to announce the arrival of holiday guests. I have mastered many of her recipes and last year finally managed a very respectable batch of divinity. When the Christmas season arrives, I lovingly remember Granny and cherish the magic and resilience she gave me. And during the holiday season, when I see a Greyhound bus on the highway, I think to myself, in the belly of that machine may travel some child's Christmas. Uh, Leonard Lee Smith, hmm. and, uh, and maybe some of you can relate to that story in numerous ways. Uh, a couple of the things he talked about resonated with me. And, and uh, you know, Christmas is about so many things, but it's also about those traditions and about love and about what 
um, what you get to feel around that time. That's why it's so popular. Yep. Yeah, that's why it stayed that way. You relate to any of that in there? Yeah? You know, I had kind of a different childhood. I know you did. I um, know you did. Sometimes, yes. Uh, Yeah, okay. Right right when we come back, uh, we'll be back in just a few minutes. Hope you're all having a a great start to a Christmas week. Be right back. We're live today, and uh, we'll take your calls, too, when we come on back. Every home. This show is previously recorded. Talk lines are open now. Call 888-673-1450. This is the Kate Daly Show. The stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in live show before Christmas and uh, you know through the years I've played a lot of recordings and have done a lot on uh, Christmas. I actually played um, the uh, Falk uh, story, the famous Christmas story, the one I play every year. I played it last week on Wednesday and that is on podcast. It's just a nine minute, uh, it's a 13 minute podcast. Make sure and grab that. Uh, It's such a wonderful story in the way that uh, John Henry Falk talks about it, tells it that it is not to be missed uh, during this Christmas season. I welcome back Uncle Milty's with me. Hi there. And uh, and, uh, Oh Holy Night, by the way, Oh Holy Night uh, was the very, in 1906, was the very first broadcast over the radio. Uh, The the gentleman played um, Oh Holy Night on the violin and also read, from the gospel according to Luke, <laughs> we, Uncle Milty and I were just having this conversation, I uh, read from uh, Luke chapter 2 from his Bible, and uh, and that was the first recording that ever went out. The, uh, the song written by a poet in France in 1847, but in 1906, on Christmas Eve, it was the very, very first uh, recording that ever went out on the uh, airwaves. Uh, he didn't even know that anyone was listening or could hear him. When he did this, he was just tinkering in his office. He was only 33 years old, and uh, he was a uh, 33-year-old university professor named Reginald Fessenden. And uh, he played uh, Oh Holy Night on his violin. I think that's pretty apropos. I think it's really neat that yeah. that's, that yeah, was the case, is. you know. Um, favorite uh, uh, favorite memory at Christmas? Favorite something or other at Christmas, Uncle Milty? You know, a, a big thing in my family, mm-hmm. when I was real young, my grandmother would read mm-hmm. Dickens. Oh, yeah. A Christmas Carol. Mm-hmm. That was always a big thing. Sure. Um, and then we started watching the movie. Mm-hmm. And I can only watch one version of that movie. I don't really? like, I don't enjoy like any of the other. Remakes? Mm-hmm. The only one is the 1951 version with Alastair Sim as Ebenezer Scrooge. Mm. What do you like about that one? Yeah, it just. That's it for you? That's the story? It is the story. It doesn't have any of the, mm-hmm. you know, over time from the 1950s on, 
Mm-hmm. We started looking at things a little differently here and there. Mm-hmm. And the newer versions show that change. And the the original Alastair Sim movie is is exactly like reading the book. I mean, it's just oh, almost perfect. Yeah. So it makes a huge difference. But there was a couple of versions on this past week, and I, I was disappointed because the night they did the Alastair Sim version, I wasn't able mm. to watch it. So Aww. I haven't seen it come up again. But that's been a tradition of yours. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 That's a biggie for me. And uh, It's a Wonderful Life? Always. Always. <laughs> always. I have that yeah. recorded, yeah. so I always have that right. to watch. I love that. Uh, one of the things about my faith, I don't really sh- usually share a lot on this national show, but um, but the uh, Book of Mormon, for a lot of people that don't know, it, it's, it's really truly about uh, 600 years before Christ and the foretelling that he was going to be born across the pond and uh, from people here. And as uh, they were discussing anew of his impending arrival, um, the book is about that. And so for us, Christmas time is very, very special because it was forecast here as it was there. And um, and the fact that that's, the, you know, this book's been around a long time. It's never been disproven. This was a, a record of the people here. And I, I just find that even more so adds to the Christmas story for me because uh, his birth was that important that uh, they were even prophesizing about it 600 years before he came and and really preparing everybody. That's what that's about. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people don't realize that they probably have never read it or don't understand, you know, what it's really about. But um, but it is. And I'm uh, so grateful for that and what it means in my life. Um, and so, uh, faith is a huge, huge, important part of my life. I, I wouldn't be here without my faith. And I think you feel the same way. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's, what's probably really important about this holiday. And I love Paul Harvey in the very beginning talking about the fact that, you know, we've moved away from the real meaning of this. And this really is about his birthday, not ours. <laughs> it's his birthday. Sometimes we forget that. And I love the lesson that's told in that because I, we really do have to remember and teach our children um, that it's really about him, uh, that, w- that it really comes down to uh, Christ, uh, the Savior being born. That's it. That's why we're all gathering. So um, and why this I think this day just continues to be that special for people, truly. Um, all right. I'll take a, a call real quick. Hi, caller. Welcome to the show. Go right ahead. Well, good afternoon. Hi Dad. there. Hi, Hi there. Go right ahead. Um, I, I, Milty, I agree with you, uh, about the Christmas Carol. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> my, I, that's a, a tradition of, of our family as well. Mm-hmm. The, we watch two versions of that. I, I will admit that I have not ever seen the the uh, 51 version that you mentioned, mm-hmm. and I think I'll have to, to check that out. Uh-huh. But uh, the one that we watch is the one with George C. Scott. Mm-hmm. And then we also watch The Muppets. <laughs> <laughs> and I've seen those too. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, my grandkids, for example, that that's a tradition that we've, you mm-hmm. know, set with them, you know, Christmas Eve when we're around them. Sure. You know, we're, we're always sitting down to watch the Muppet Christmas Carol. And, well, thank and you. Like yep. And I Thanks. actually have, um, mm-hmm. it was only just a couple of years ago when mm-hmm. I first read the story itself. Mm. I've never read the Christmas Carol until just a couple of years ago. Oh, interesting. And I really, really enjoyed the story. Thank you. Yep. 
Thank you for that. Really appreciate that. Yeah, uh, yeah we do too. And and uh, it's always a classic. All the versions and everything. Oh yeah, I love it. That the one the version I like. I think it really makes you feel like you're in that time period mm-hmm. more than any other by far. Yeah. Uh, I have, yeah, I agree. In fact, they have the truth about the, the real Ebenezer Scrooge, who was Tiny Tim, where did the Cratchits really live? There's a whole backstory to that. And it's really, really intriguing too. You can find that online. Um, you know, the weird scene in the pawnbroker shop, there's all kinds of scenes, uh, that are, that are explained, Mm -hmm. um, into, um, into people that from, from real life. So I always find that kind of interesting too. Um, lots of, lots of traditions, I should say. I wanted to, um, play this quick one for you. This was a Christmas in 1949 and I love this one too. Uh, this is just uh, three and a half minutes. Here we go. I love, I love the telling of this because it really is what Christmas is truly about. If you really think about it. And I love the story about, um, when they recorded in the, in the, in the very beginning of the 1900s, what public education was and the kids were actually making things to go in Santa's bag. Santa didn't deliver them presents. They delivered presents to Santa. Santa took them away in his red bag to give to kids that were, that didn't have anything. Right. And I, I just, there's something that we've switched, you know, about Christmas, but three and a half minutes. Here we go. The Christmas of 1949. Here you go. A light drizzle was falling as my sister Jill and I ran out of the Methodist church, eager to get home and play with the presents that Santa had left for us and our baby sister, Sharon. Across the street from the church was a Pan American gas station where the Greyhound bus stopped. It was closed for Christmas, but I noticed a family standing outside the locked door, huddled under the narrow overhang in an attempt to keep dry. I wondered briefly why they were there, but then forgot about them as I raced to keep up with Jill. Once we got home, there was barely time to enjoy our presents. We had to go off to our grandparents' house for our annual Christmas dinner. As we drove down the highway through town, I noticed that the family was still there, standing outside the closed gas station. My father was driving very slowly down the highway. The closer we got to the turnoff from my grandparents' house, the slower the car went. Suddenly, my father U-turned in the middle of the road and said, I can't stand it. What? asked my mother. It's those people back there at the Pan Am standing in the rain. They've got children. It's Christmas. I can't stand it. When my father pulled into the service station, I saw that there were five of them, the parents and three children, two girls and a small boy. My father rolled down his window. Merry Christmas, he said. Howdy, the man replied. He was very tall and had to stoop slightly to peer into the car. Jill, Sharon, and I stared at the children, and they stared back at us. You waiting on the bus, my father asked. The man said that they were. They were going to Birmingham, where he had a brother and prospects of a job. Well, that bus isn't going to come along for several hours, and you're getting wet standing there. Windborne's just a couple miles up the road. They've got a shed with a cover there and some benches, my father said. Why don't you all get in the car, and I'll run you up there. The man thought for a moment, and then he beckoned to his family. They climbed into the car. They had no luggage, only the clothes they were wearing. Once they were settled in, my father looked back over his shoulder and asked the children if Santa had found them yet. Three glum faces mutely gave him the answer. Well, I didn't think so, my father said, winking at my mother, because when I saw Santa this morning, he told me he was having trouble finding y'all, and he asked me if he could leave your toys at my house. We'll just go get them before I take you to the bus stop. All at once, the three children's faces lit up, and they began to bounce around in the back seat, laughing and chattering. 
When we got out of the car at our house, the three children ran through the front door and straight to the toys that were spread out under our Christmas tree. One of the girls spied Jill's doll and immediately hugged it to her breast. I remember that the little boy grabbed Sharon's ball, and the other girl picked up something of mine. All this happened a long time ago, but the memory of it remains clear. This was the Christmas when my sisters and I learned the joy of making others happy. My mother noticed that the middle child was wearing a short-sleeved dress, so she gave the girl Jill's only sweater to wear. My father invited them to join us at our grandparents' for Christmas dinner, but the parents refused. Even when we all tried to talk them into coming, they were firm in their decision. Back in the car, on the way to Winborne, my father asked the man if he had money for bus fare. His brother had sent tickets, the man said. My father reached into his pocket and pulled out two dollars, which was all he had left until his next payday. He pressed the money into the man's hand. The man tried to give it back, but my father insisted. It'll be late when you get to Birmingham, and these children will be hungry before then. Take it. I've been broke before, and I know what it's like when you can't feed your family. We left them there at the bus stop in Winborne. As we drove away, I watched out the window as long as I could, looking back at the little girl hugging her new dog. Wow. Nice. That's a, that's a really touching story. It is. And it's one of the gifts that we've lost a lot of. It's been diluted yeah. due to okay. forced giving. I so agree with that. I so agree with that. I was watching everybody gather their list frantically mm. uh, shopping over the weekend. And everybody, you know, you could tell it was like a check mark on the list. You know, yep. I've got so-and-so, I've got so-and-so, I've got so-and-so. And the frantic faces. And I thought to myself, sometimes we've we've really lost that. I was thinking the same thing over the weekend. It's kind of funny that you'd say that. But it really is. You know, the only Christmases people ever really remember, because if you ask your kids what they got last year, they won't be able to tell you. It's the ones where there was a sacrifice made or something, just like in the telling of this 1949. At this time of year. By Paul Oscar. Every mm-hmm. time I think about going shopping to buy a gift, uh-huh. I get depressed. Really? Yeah. Because to me, it's just not about that. I, yeah. Who wants to sit and pull their hair out trying to figure out what to get somebody as a gift <laughs> that's so true. that they might appreciate, yeah. but you don't really yeah. know. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah. But uh, it really is in the giving. When Paul Oscar wrote this, that was the Christmas that came to mind. And and, and I'll, I'll bet he tells that story all the time. Oh, yeah. It's always the story where a sacrifice was made. Yep. You know, my father-in-law tells the same story uh, about... Um, about a cow that they, her, him and his brother tried to sell so they could get presents for the rest of the family. And it's the same kind of thing. It's always about the sacrifice. My kids remember the, the Christmases where we delivered pre- presents to another family anonymously. That's the part they remember the most. Yep. And, uh, and I sure hope that we, give, we, we keep up the giving because it's the giving, it's the sacrificing. Otherwise, what does it really mean? Because it's his birthday, not ours, you know? That's uh, right. And uh, I love that Paul Harvey said that. I, I wish all of you a Merry Christmas. We'll be back after the holidays, but I'm so grateful. I'm grateful to you, Uncle Milty. Thanks for being my, my co-host on this show. I love it. Well, I love being you're here You're good at you. it. You're good at it. What can I say? And, uh, and I'm just so grateful to him. And I'm grateful to all of you. Thank you for all your continued support. Thank you for donations to the show. Thank you for just 
being you. I really appreciate and gleam off of all of you. And I really do hope that we have such a, a happy Christmas and New Year's and that we kind of forget about politics for the next little while and concentrate on what's important. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> Merry Christmas to all of you. I'll put this up on podcast for you. And uh, thanks, Uncle Milty. Thank you. Merry, Merry Christmas. Christmas. You too. Everybody have a great one. Be faithful. Be fearless. See you back here after the holidays. 